Thanks, Justin. Good morning, everybody. You know, it's amazing when you're new to a church body, or really any body for that matter, and you walk in, what a difference it makes if somebody actually just introduces themselves to you in a very warm manner. And that was, that was Justin for me. Uh, Kelsey and I were brand new to Portico Church. We were checking out churches in the area, and either our first or second Sunday, as the service was ending, he just runs right up to us. Hey, I just want to introduce myself. Saw you guys were new. I think I'd, you know, I, think I'd, I know your older brother, and I mean, you know, so thank you, Justin. That, that's one of the, the main reasons that we actually stayed at Portico was because of you and really just a couple other people that made us feel very welcome. So thank you for that. And then it was just a couple weeks later, actually, that I saw Justin and about 20 other equally insane people heading out to Fairfax to uh, plant a church. So it's awesome to be here with you guys for the first time and, and open up God's Word. Uh, and I just want to take a quick moment and uh, introduce my lovely wife, Kelsey. I don't know where she is, but I just want to thank her for uh, oh, she's right there. <laughs> Off to a great start. Uh, just want to thank her for being with me today. Uh, you know, I'd love to meet any of you guys after the service, uh, but I especially encourage you, encourage you to meet her. She's way more interesting than I am. And if, if truth be told, her, her faith is way stronger than mine. Uh, she didn't even start following Jesus until she was in her 20s, and uh, she's really been an incredible anchor to me, and I, I don't think I'd be standing here right now as a follower of Christ if, if it wasn't for her encouragement. So thank you so much. Um, thank you, Justin, for opening us up in prayer. So I'm just going to use that as a springboard to, to dive in. So if you have your uh, Bible with you today, please go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, you can actually raise your hand, and uh, one of the Portico leaders will hand you one. And I think I have permission to say this. If, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep it and take it home, and uh, that'll, be, that'll be Sojourn's gift to you. Sorry, Justin, if I'm giving away your stuff. Um. <laughs> So this will be Matthew chapter 6, we're in verses 19 to 24, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. I know you all have been moving through it over the past couple months. We've actually been moving through it at Portico as well. It's completely coincidental. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it's arguably the most famous teaching of Jesus. It's one of the most famous pieces of literature in all of history, for that matter. And I think if you were to go out and just ask the average person on the street, maybe the average professing Christian, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Most people have heard of it, and many would probably say something along the lines of, oh, that's the you know, moral teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you know, love your enemies. Give to the poor. And if you do all these moral things, then God will bless you. He'll accept you and he'll take you to heaven. Jesus says, no, 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 not at all. You're not accepted by God. You're not loved by God because of anything you do that can only come through what Jesus Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection. However, the 
evidence that you've been loved by God, the evidence that you've experienced his grace is that you obey his teaching, and that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, I I love the the name inverted kingdom because Jesus doesn't call us just to have this nice kind of peace in our hearts as individuals, but as an alternate human society, a a counterculture that doesn't live by the norms of the world, you know, power and and self-service, but the, the norms of his kingdom, meekness, poverty in spirit, loving others as yourself. And he, and he calls us not to just, you know, come here as a church, as individuals, and worship him, which we should absolutely do, but actually go out into the world and reweave the fabric where it's torn. So, so far, Jesus has covered very weighty topics, such as sexual integrity, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, prayer. And today, we come to the topic of treasure. Now, when Justin first asked me if I could preach today on the 28th, I, he told me the passage that it would be on, so... I looked at it, and I read it, and I thought, oh, great. I'm going to go stand in front of a bunch of people I've never met before and tell them how to handle their money. Awesome. Uh, but as I looked at it, Jesus is actually getting at something much deeper than money. Money is absolutely a part of it, sure, but he's after something much more incisive. He's talking about treasure. What is your treasure? Now, the answer to this question Not only is it going to affect, but it will absolutely determine how you think about life, how you feel about life, how you, where you steer your life. I'm going to be so bold as to say it's the most important question that Jesus can ask you. What's your treasure? Why is that the most important question? Well, we're about to find out. So today we're going to look at Jesus' teaching under four headings. The reality of treasure, the problem of treasure, the traps of treasure, and the solution of treasure. So the reality of treasure, the problem of treasure, the traps of treasure, and the solution of treasure. So number one, the reality. Look at the first few verses here. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, the original language, it, it actually says there, don't treasure treasures on earth. So You can read it as such, don't treasure treasures on earth, but treasure treasures in heaven, and then where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So Jesus, he's clearly emphasizing this word. So first, what does treasure mean? Let's let's define our terms. Treasure is what you long for. It's some vision of the good life and flourishing that, that you have in your heart of hearts. What you believe will give you satisfaction, what you believe will give you meaning and hope, what, if you obtain it, will give you that deep sense of fulfillment? We, we all treasure something. And now, now look at verse 21. So this is what the entire passage orbits around. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very famous line. Most of you have probably heard that before. But what does it really mean? What it means is that what you hope in, what you treasure, will fundamentally direct where you steer your life. Jesus here, he's getting at the, at the very center of what it means to be human. Because to be human is to be fundamentally oriented and directed towards something, to seek some kind of all-encompassing, soul-satisfying purpose. We're, we're not content even just to have our basic needs of food and, and clothing met, even to have a, a wonderful spouse. There has to be some kind of purpose to our lives. That's why you see people come out of retirement all the time, right? It, it's not enough just to sit in a house and play golf all day. This is what separates us from animals. 
So I have a cat. She's this huge 21-pound white short-haired cat with a tiger tail. Her name's Oops. And <laughs> it's like God was making the animals and he stuck the tail on the wrong body. Uh, <laughs> should probably just stop there. Uh, but so Oops, she's a sentient being, right? Like I am. But she doesn't sit there and get troubled by these existential questions of meaning and purpose like I do. You know, she's perfectly content to just eat, sleep, get her head scratched every few hours, knock my cup of water over. Um, you know, if, if reincarnation were real, I, I'd probably want to come back as a domesticated house cat. I mean, they, they have the life. But, see, humans aren't like that, though, right? We're not just content to sit there and have our basic needs met. So when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, he knows that what makes you who you are isn't what you think, like the Enlightenment tried to say. It's not what you feel, which is what our modern Western culture says. What makes you who you are is what you love, what your heart treasures. So treasures a lot like gravity. Think about objects in in gravity. Every object is restless until it finds its proper place based on its weight. So a stone wants to fall down. A fire wants to move upward. If you've ever tried to hold a, a beach ball underwater, you know it wants, to, it wants to rise up to the surface, right? You could say it's restless until it gets out of the water and goes up top. Your treasure is the same way. It's the center of gravity that pulls you toward what your idea of the good life is. It's the, the center of value by which all other values are judged. See, an Olympic athlete, they don't care if they lose sleep or time with friends if they win the gold medal, right? Because winning is their treasure, a workaholic doesn't care if they spend lots of late nights at the office and, and, and weekends at the office, too, if it means they obtain greater financial security or peer recognition. Security and approval are their main treasure. And for me, this has been hitting home for me as I, as I was studying this passage. So I, I haven't preached that many times before. And, you know, every time I have, I've been a bit nervous. I think that's probably normal before you go and speak before people. But there have been a couple times in particular I've been really anxious, like stomach-churning anxiety. And why is that? See, I, I tell myself I want to preach because I want to worship, you know, with, with you guys, with the people of Portico, to open up God's Word and, and learn from it. But maybe sometimes that jump from slight nerves to anxiety happens because what my, real, what my treasure is is maybe it's being seen as a good preacher, or maybe being seen as just somebody who's very helpful in, in unpacking the Word of God. And see, this is why Jesus, in, in the beginning of the book of John, when two would-be disciples, they, they see him and they start following him, Jesus wheels around and he turns and he asks them, his first question to them is, what do you want? See, he wants to know what their hearts are fundamentally directed toward. Is it him? Or is he just another shiny object that they're going to kind of fascinate on for a little while and then move on to their next thing in pursuit of their real treasure. So it's the same question he asks us. When Jesus says, will you follow me? He's asking us, do you love me? Because he knows if if we don't, that's not really what we're going to be directing our life toward. He says, am I the center of gravity by which you judge all other values? Am I what gives you hope? So just to give a quick illustration of, of how important this idea of treasure is to being human, you know, what we, what we hope in, uh, or sorry, what we hope in, it will fundamentally affect how we interpret the present. And wh- what I mean by that is, so take two people, same, you know, personality type, say they're, they're, they're clones of each other. 
put them in identical rooms and give them the, the same exact task. So say you have to fold paper into thirds and stick it in an envelope for eight hours a day. Now you tell, now they have same situation, so same lighting, same temperature, same lunches, you know, same commute, everything. But you tell one person, at the end of the year, I'm gonna pay you $5,000. You tell the other person, at the end of the year, I'm gonna pay you $5 million. So what's gonna happen? Probably, you know, a couple weeks in, they'll be in the cafeteria eating together, and then the, the one who's getting paid $5,000 will look over the other and say, don't, don't you, isn't this job kind of tedious? You know, the, and then the one who's getting paid $5 million at the end of the year will probably say something like, no, not really. It's not bad at all. <laughs> What's the difference? Same exact situation, but they're both hoping in something completely different. What they're expecting at the end of the year is completely changing how they're interpreting the present. So what you're treasuring, what you're hoping in, is, is radically important. So that's the reality of treasure. We all long for some vision of the good life, and that's what orients our lives, and it's how we interpret the present. So number two, the problem of treasure. The problem of treasure is, it's elusive. So look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So back then, your assets, they, they weren't currency like ours are today. They were, they were physical things. So thieves could steal them. Rust refers to any kind of decay. And he says moths there because garments were actually a huge part of your, your wealth. Garments were extremely expensive to make, way more expensive than it, than, it, than it costs to make them now. You'd often keep it for your entire life, pass it down to your children, but moths could destroy those. That, that's the idea of, of moths. But the heart of the illustration is don't put your hope in anything that doesn't last, right? Don't treasure anything that's fragile. Why? Here's why, and it's absolutely crucial. Here, here's what I think Jesus' thesis is, and it's a, it's a profoundly bold thesis. He says, you don't know how deep your heart's desires actually go. See, you, you head out into the world, and you have a longing, this desire for fulfillment, but you, you don't even recognize as such, and, you, and you, you think ordinary life can give it to you. So it may be a great career, it might be a wonderful spouse, it might be family, and you think, surely if I do these things, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. But as you go along, you find you're not fulfilled. And so either, either you just actually never obtain what you're after, maybe you're not skilled enough or something gets in your way, or you do obtain it, but you, you find, you know, maybe give it some time, and you're, you're still not content. See, you're, you're treasuring something, you're, you're hungry for something that ultimately can't be found on this earth because of the thieves, because of the moths and the rust. And th there are a number of authors across the centuries who, who have expressed this, uh, so I'll just read you a few of them. Uh, Horace, he, he was a Roman lyric poet in the first century B.C., he said, no one lives content with his condition. Period. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, Wallace Stevens, he was a poet in the early 20th century. He said, in contentment, I still feel the need for some imperishable bliss. So what he's getting at is, even in a moment where he feels very content, he recognizes that it's not going to last forever, and the mere recognition of that ruins it. 
Like, you know, there, I'm sure you guys can, you know, relate to that. One example I, I think of is if you go, at, say you go to an airport in a Caribbean island, and you watch the people heading into the Caribbean, and then the people leaving the Caribbean, two, two completely different looks on their faces. You know, the people entering are super excited, super happy. I mean, I am these people, so I'm not making fun of them. And then, the, but the people leaving, heading onto the plane to go back to their jobs, they, they don't look too excited, do they? Because even in those moments of contentment, you know it's not going to last. You feel the need for some imperishable bliss. Uh, Brandon Saunderson, he's a modern, pretty pro- prolific fantasy author. I, I like to read fantasy fiction before I go to bed. And actually, just this past week, I was reading one of his books, The Way of Kings. And as I was reading, there's these two great leaders in the story, and they're having this philosophical discussion. And one of them says, At times, it seems to me that to be human is to want that which we cannot have. To be human is to want that which we cannot have. And finally, I heard uh, C.S. Lewis quoted earlier, so I'll just follow in the wake of that. I don't think anybody put this whole idea better than C.S. Lewis during his radio broadcast on the BBC during World War II in a section called Hope. He said, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or think of some foreign country, or first take up a subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. The wife may have been a good wife. The scenery was excellent. It may have been a good job. But something, something has evaded us. Um... Kelsey in college, my wife, so she, you know, she wasn't even a Christian at the time, and her, her treasure was bodybuilding. She had to win, and she was very good at it. I mean, I, I remember I used to, I didn't know her. I would just kind of watch her in, in the gym. She'd be in there three times a day, and she ended up actually eventually getting her pro card. Uh, she won a, a number of competitions and, and got her pro card, and, you know, she, she told me this, you know, way later once we started dating, and she accepted Christ. She said, you know what I did after I received my pro card? I said, what? You're expecting some kind of celebration. She said, I I went to the back hallway of the building and wept. Because she said, I I thought this was going to give me what I wanted. (laughs) But in some ways, I'm even more unfulfilled than I was before because something is missing. So Jesus says, you may not realize it yet, But if you live long enough, and if you slow down enough to think, you'll see your heart goes deeper than you know. And and if you fill it with things on earth, at best, you'll be left spiritually hungry and wanting. And at worst, well, we'll see that in a second. So that's the problem of treasure. The reality of treasure, we all long for something. We orient every fiber of our being toward obtaining it. And the problem of treasure is that it's way more evasive than we ever dared imagine. So next the traps of treasure. Look at verse 22. This is where he gives the eye and the lamp illustration. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what's he getting at here? It's a pretty simple illustration, but frankly, I kind of found it a little hard to understand when I was reading it for the first few times. So lamps help you walk around a room without hurting yourself, right? If the, if the lamp is on, you can, you can see where the furniture is. You can avoid tripping and stubbing your toe. But if your eye is blind, then it doesn't matter if the lamp is on, right? You're still probably going to stumble into something because you're blind. So let's extrapolate that to the spiritual realm, which is what Jesus is getting at. When he says the eye, he's referring to what you fix your gaze toward, what you long for. In the Bible, the, the eye is actually often interchangeably used with the heart. So if the, what he's saying is if the non-negotiable of your life is treasure on earth, you're walking around blind, and it can cause you to walk right by the kingdom of God. So here, here are four ways that, that pursuing earthly treasure can cause you to walk around blind. Four things that happen when you're half-heartedly, say, half-heartedly committed to the kingdom of God, but wholeheartedly committed to some treasure on earth. So number one is the young, naive approach. Now, before I get into this, let me just state the obvious, and this may sound absurd coming from me because I'm pretty young. I feel like I'm probably the average age of most of you guys in here. Some of you are a little younger, other, other, others of you are older. So I, I'm, I'm just going to give you full disclosure. And these points I'm about to lay out, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, I'm sure a number of you are familiar with him. He was talking about a similar passage with regards to fulfillment, and these are some of the things that, that he laid out what happens when, when we—he wasn't talking about treasure, but when we pursue— these earthly things. So he's in his mid-60s. You know, he pastors up in Manhattan with a lot of extremely gifted young and old Manhattanites. So if anything, if you don't want to listen to me because I'm 30, you can listen to him. You know, he's been around way longer, and, and he, he's seen this play out. So the young, naive approach. Uh, I've already alluded to this a bit. So Tim Keller will say, something gets in the way of really listening to what Jesus is saying because we don't recognize our soul thirst for what it really is. So if you're young, you think, of course I'm not fulfilled yet. I haven't gotten that job. I haven't gotten that spouse. I haven't had kids yet. I haven't climbed high in my career. So whatever you're longing for, you're, you're sure it's going to satisfy you, but of, of course you're not happy now because you haven't obtained it yet. So you just keep going on about your life having no idea how deep that soul thirst actually is, that it's never going to go away. And so the danger here isn't just that we're going to walk around naive, but we're so focused on obtaining it, that elusive treasure, that we miss the work Jesus has right now for us in the kingdom. I've been doing some research on what sociologists are saying about the millennial generation, and there's, you know, list out, you know, many strengths about the millennial generation. People love to pick on them, so I appreciated that these researchers were kind of laying out some of their strengths. But what this author said is uh, the, one of the established consensuses of millennials is not that they're necessarily anti-church, but they just don't really see church as that important. It's just kind of not, not important. Uh, you know, it's like, why? What does it really have for me? I can do all these other things and then get spiritual later on, you know, before I die, something like that. There's other things to do first. And you, now with social media, everything on the internet, there are just so many things coming at you, so, so many awesome things to do that there's a, <laughs> why pursue the kingdom? So when we're naive, we tend to say, oh, oh, the kingdom of God is great, but the real treasure is establishing myself in my career. Oh, the kingdom of God's great, but, you know, first I have to uh, obtain a spouse or experience, you know, sexual freedom. Or, oh, the kingdom of God is great, but fill in the blank, fill in the blank. 
are romance and career and travel experiences bad? No, absolutely not. But when they're your treasure, when they're your non-negotiable, when they're your true meaning and significance, tend to walk right by the kingdom. Sure, I'll just go to church a couple times, maybe a community group, but I mean, what does it really have to give me? So that's the young, naive approach. Number two is the frantic, driven approach. This is where when you haven't obtained it yet, you start frantically searching for it. So C.S. Lewis mentioned this in his same talk of where I quoted him earlier. So you, you, you work really hard, and then when the job doesn't give it to you, you're unsatisfied, so you go to another job. And then one or two years in, you're, you're still not fulfilled, so you go to another job. Or maybe your spouse isn't giving you everything you want, so you start fantasizing about a different spouse. Or maybe you try to find another spouse. And it's hard to make decisions because every decision must be rewarding. Every experience must be amazing or you're missing out. So you're kind of, you're frantic because when you, when you expect heaven on earth, you, you tend to get disappointed and frantic when earth doesn't deliver that. And I really resonate with this. I mean, even with my call into full-time ministry that I'm looking at now, I'm, I'm constantly wondering, you know, is, it, is this really what I should be doing? And of course, there, there's some level of indecisiveness, I think, that usually comes with making a big decision. But I think when I really examine my own heart, there, there's this undercurrent of, will this fulfill me? Will it give me what I want, what I'm looking for? Um, so even ministry can be used as kind of uh, earthly treasure to, to be used as a means to an end. So you have the young, naive approach, the frantic-driven approach, and the next you have despondency and despair. So this is when you're, you're not frantic, but when you realize you're not happy, you, you blame yourself. So you say, okay, yeah, that deep satisfaction is out there, but you know, I didn't get that job, or you know, I'm not dating that person that I wanted to, but if I did, I'd be happy. But I'd, you know, I guess I'm not competent enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I, I'm, I'm ugly. And you just, you, you condemn yourself because these things that you didn't get are your fault. So you get angry at yourself. You get angry at yourself. Jesus says you're walking around blind and completely missing the kingdom he offers. So num- the last one, number four, is the, the cynical approach. I think in our modern Western culture, this is viewed as the, uh, the, the sophisticated approach to fulfillment. It's kind of like the only intellectually mature position you can take toward this. It says, yeah, when I was younger and naive, I was blissful. I thought I could change the world. I thought I could find meaning. But since I've gotten older, I've, I've opened my eyes. I've realized it's not really there. I stopped chasing rainbows. You know, all, all that's left is just grab what you can. And for one thing, well, yeah, <laughs> for one thing, it, it's incredibly dehumanizing. I think it, it completely calluses you and takes away the very thing that, that makes you human. We, we are different than animals. We do want to treasure something, right? And it also, cynicism creates an incredibly condescending spirit. You tend to look down on those who are chasing rainbows and think, oh yeah, look at them, they're, they're so stupid, they don't even realize it's not out there. It, it creates the exact opposite heart of what Christ is calling for in his community of followers. Mourning with those who mourn, meekness, being salt and light of the earth. So that's the first trap of pursuing earthly treasure. We become blind to the kingdom of God, and in our efforts to pursue these other things, we either walk around naive and passive, we get frantic and, and driven, or we become condescending, we get angry at ourselves. So the second trap is of pursuing earthly treasure is we become enslaved to another master. Let's look at verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, Jesus warns us of of greed and covetousness um, far more than he warns us of, of lust and other sins. Why? I think because very few of us actually think we're greedy. You know, hear this? No, I'm, I'm not greedy. I think if you were to talk to, to many pastors, they, they'd probably tell you, absolutely, they've, they've counseled people through rough times in their marriages, through their jobs, maybe confessing, you know, other sins of uh, lying or, or something like that. But how often does a, does a pastor have somebody walk in and say, you know, I'm just a lot greedier than I should be. I, I keep way too much to myself. I don't give enough to others. I need more eyes on my money. We, we tend to not really think it's a problem. See, Jesus in, in Luke 12, he says, be on guard against greed. Watch out for greed. So why doesn't he ever say, be on guard? You might be committing adultery. Because you, you know when you're committing adultery. <laughs> but with greed, I think we don't realize we're greedy. So that's why he's always admonishing us in this area. It should really give us pause. I really didn't used to think I'm, I'm greeting as I've learned more about what Jesus says about it. It's a, it's a pain point for me. But, but second here, okay, is he saying that if you have a lot of money or if you make a lot of money, then you're out of the kingdom? No. So there, there are many people in Scripture. David, Solomon, Zacchaeus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Abraham, Job, all extremely wealthy, yet definitely in the kingdom. Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures through and through, and the Old Testament has a lot of good things to say about wealth creation. It has a lot of positive things to say about the relationship of uh, wages to hard work. Scripture also has a lot of warnings and negative things to say about money. See, you could say in some ways the Bible views wealth creation in a more positive light than socialist societies tend to do, but also in a more dangerous, potentially sullying influence than capitalist societies tend to do. So you can't really slide the Bible's take on money into the spectrum of socialism and capitalism. The Bible's take is it's way too nuanced for that. But here Jesus is focusing on the warnings. So that's what we're going to look at real quick. What he's saying is that of all the things that can keep you from God, money tends to amplify those things. It tends to serve as a multiplier of those things. And that is really, really dangerous. See, the gospel is you're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, not by anything you do, but by what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection. That's the gospel. And so when you're in Christ, God gives you all the status and love that Jesus himself has earned. But money promises the same things God offers through Jesus, right? Status, love, approval, security and comfort. It promises something through which you can save yourself, through which you can be your own master rather than relying on Christ. So, for example, the the book of Proverbs, it compares God and money to that of a fortified city. Proverbs 18, 10 to 11 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and a high wall in his imagination. So the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to the name of the Lord and is safe. But a rich man's wealth, that's his fortified city and a high wall in his imagination. 
In ancient times, a, a city, that, that was your place, that was a place of security and, and safety. Because if you're inside the walls, then you're not subject to, you know, the storms and the marauders and everything out there. It was very dangerous to be outside the city, the city walls in Old Testament times. So what Jesus, is, what Proverbs says is a righteous man tends to look at the, to the Lord for his safety and security. I'm sorry, a righteous man tends to look at the Lord for his safety and security, but a wealthy man or a fool tends to look at his riches to be his safety and security. Because it's easy when you have a lot of money stored away to think, I'm safe. You know, a, a lot of things can happen in me, but I'm good. I've got enough stored in the bank account. If something bad happens, I'll be okay. But there, there are many worse things that can happen to you than losing your job. And money won't help you if that happens. Will, will money save you if all of a sudden you find out you have a terminal illness and you only have three months left to live? Can money save you if your spouse cheats on you or a friend betrays you and stabs you in the back? If someone you love gets in a fatal accident, what's going to get you through those things? It's not money. It's character, faith. Jesus is your treasure. All things that are really hard to obtain when you're chasing money all the time rather than his kingdom. Jesus says in God's kingdom, there's no divided loyalty. You can really only serve one master. And one of the ways you can tell if if money has power over you is, do you have a hard time giving a lot of it away? Do you have a hard time giving so much away that it would actually impact what you're able to spend on other things? Maybe you don't spend, but you save like crazy. So you're spending on your 401k. Money is your security and your, and your safety. Is, is, is saving bad? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us to be great stewards of, of our money. But when it's your security, when it's your treasure, when, you, when your biggest nightmare would be having no money in the bank account and then all of a sudden a lot of debt piling up, then maybe it's your treasure, a false god. So money is a master that often enslaves us. But this verse isn't just about money. Really, at the heart of this verse here, it, it's about divided loyalties. And Jesus warns us that if we decide not to live for God, at first that can look like, I have a lot of freedom. I can, I can do whatever I want. But Jesus says, don't kid yourself. Because if you do that, something will enslave you as your master in the place of God. And I don't think anybody put this better than David Foster Wallace. He was a, a, he was a late uh, postmodern novelist, and he wasn't a Christian. And he gave a penetrating address to Kenyon College, a a liberal arts school, in 2005. And here's what he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lore, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your own intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship 
is not that they're evil or sinful, but that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. Not a Christian. And the, the tragic thing about this is Foster Wallace, he, he committed suicide, I believe it was a, a couple years after giving this address. And everyone adored him. I mean, he was at the, the top of his class when it came to intellectual writers. He was brilliant. And I don't know much about his death, but I wonder if it was one of these things that he was treasuring that ultimately ate him alive. When you make an earthly thing your bottom line, it, it promises to give you the fulfillment you're seeking, but in reality, it blinds you and enslaves you. That's the trap. All right, so where does that leave us? I feel like Justin right now is like, why did I ask Steve to preach today? <laughs> so number four, the, the solution of treasure. This is great. Jesus tells us exactly what to do. He says, Lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. What he's saying is pursue satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning in something that's absolutely secure, something that can't be shaken or subject to the shifting winds of this world. What are treasures in heaven? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in chapter 3, just the next chapter, Paul says, Christ is seated in heavenly places. So what Jesus is saying is, treasure me, treasure God. Why does he say that, though? Because when you want to do the thing, when your heart wants to do the thing you ought to do, and the thing you were made to do, that's where you find freedom and fulfillment. So think about a hawk. Some hawks, I was looking at this up this week, apparently some of them can achieve speeds of upwards to 150 miles an hour. So it'll propel down toward the ground, and then right at the ground it'll shoot up, open its wings, it, it catches the wind under itself, and it soars. A, a hawk was made to do that. It, it's beautiful when you see it happen. But what if a hawk tries to catch prey by running along the ground or swimming after something? It'd be a train wreck, okay? A hawk wasn't made to do that. See, you were made to love, to know, and to worship the one who made you. That's your purpose. See, the Bible tells us we were made for God. But in the beginning, we decided to be our own master, to go our own way. And so God said, have it your way. That's fine. You can live for yourself. But this has created a, a cosmic vacuum in our souls ever since. See, there's nothing on this earth that can bear the weight of your heart's loves more than God, more than what he was meant to provide. You have to treasure him. But, but how do you treasure him? See, if, if you're like me, I, I think you, you can't just tell your heart, okay, love God more, love God, love God more. You can't just admonish it to do that. It, it doesn't work. You can't just will it. Something has to become real to your heart. And that thing is, is you have to see how Jesus treasures you. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And the, the original word there is actually treasure. You are God's treasure. How does God treasure you? In order to really grasp this, first you have to understand that real life-changing love always involves substitutionary sacrifice. 
It always does. So for example, excuse me, if a, if a parent has a child, the parent can sacrifice their time and energy, change their diapers, discipline them, carry them everywhere, and the child usually will thrive. Or the parent can decide, I don't want to sacrifice for the child. I just want to do my own thing. I'll leave my child be. The child will grow up with all kinds of emotional and psychological problems. Either the parent sacrifices and the child thrives, or the parent thrives, if you want to call it that, by doing whatever they want. The child has to sacrifice. Forgiveness works the exact same way. If you come over to my house and say you break my glass Chemex that I use to make coffee because I'm a coffee snob, and it falls off the table and it, it shatters, there's now a debt. And either you have to pay or I have to pay. I can say, oh, no, no, you, don't worry about it. It's fine. But that debt doesn't just go away. I either now have to go without my favorite coffee-forming device or I go and buy a new one. Or I say, no, you should really pay that. Pay for it. Somebody has to pay. And see, if, if God created you and sustains you every moment, every fiber of your being, how much do you owe him? Nothing less than absolute love and allegiance, right? But we don't, we don't do that. And, you know, imagine if a, a, a single mother, she, she, she has a child and she, she works her fingers to the bone, working, working, working to get this child into a good school, to pay for his college, and she, she teaches him, you know, I want you to act with integrity, I want you to, you know, do kind to others, and she teaches him these, these moral rules to, to follow. And the child eventually goes to college, he gets a great job because of what his mother was able to provide for him. But then after he goes off into the working world and he's thriving, he's still following his mother's rules, right? You know, what she told him about integrity and loving your, your neighbors yourself. But what if he, he never calls her or visits her? Maybe sends a postcard once a year? That's wrong, right? Because the mother did everything for him. It's the same thing with God. See, we've, we've wronged God. And we've not only wronged God by not loving him supremely, but we wrong each other all the time. There's a lot of injustice in this world. So who's going to pay? There's a debt. Either we pay or God has to pay. And some years ago in the National Geographic, they, they wrote a story about a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park. And after the fire, some forest rangers are just going about, you know, surveying the damage in the mountain. It's just charred, blackness everywhere. And one ranger, he, he found a bird of which nothing remained but the, the carbonized, petrified shell just kind of huddled at the base of, of the tree, this big bird shell. And he was sort of sickened by the sight, and so he knocks the, the bird over with a stick, and three tiny chicks scurry out from underneath the mother. See, when the blaze had arrived, the mother remained steadfast over her children so they could live. Because she had been willing to die, those under, her, those under the cover of her wings thrived. Does that remind you of anybody? See, Jesus was wealthy beyond imagination. But when we wronged him, he entered into the world, not just as a powerful king, but he was poor. He was born in a feeding trough. His parents, when they sacrificed, they gave two pigeons, which was the sign of the, the lowest of the low in terms of wealth. 
said foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he went to the cross. And see, the horror of the cross, it, it wasn't so much the, the physical pain, of, of course that was awful, but what was he doing on there? He was taking our punishment. We didn't want God in our life, so our just punishment is separation from God. But this is something we, we can't fathom. The, the greater, the deeper and longer a love relationship, the more painful it is when you're separated, right? So if you have a good friend and then you're separated, either through betrayal or whatever, that, that's painful. If a spouse betrays you or a family member, that's really painful. But Jesus, he's been knowing and loving and just being wrapped up in his Father's love for all of eternity. And see, on the cross, when Jesus, he, he sees all his friends abandoning him, the last thing he sees is the, the backs of his friends as they're running away. The very people he came to say are, save are mocking him and ridiculing him. And then finally, as he, as he feels God begin to pour his wrath upon him and separate him from, from his presence, Jesus, he, he could have stopped it. He could have stopped it. But in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, he looked at you and he stayed. He stayed for you. He was consumed so that you could live. He was cut off from the Father so you could be brought in as a child of God. That's the kind of love and fulfillment you need. Can you, can you follow that king? Can you trust the one who did that for you? See, if, if you trust Jesus, all the punishment you deserve gets passed on to him and all the love and adoration and affection and treasure of the Father gets passed on to you. And God sees you as more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. That's the gospel. So career, it's great. But it, it's no longer your source of identity and fulfillment. You can use your career as a way to serve others. Money becomes just money. It's not your source of safety and security. You can be free to give it, to bless others. See, it's, it's only those who've experienced this kind of life-changing love that can actually go out into the world, like Jesus is calling us in the Sermon on the Mount, to forgive others, to work for justice, to reweave the torn fabric of the world. And friends, I, I implore you today, I know there's, there's a lot of people around my age, some younger, hear what Jesus is saying. Do not seek some other paltry thing instead of him. And if you're here and you know, you're not sure if, if you buy the whole Christianity thing, maybe you think everything I said today was silly. I hope you come back some other time. A sojourn would love to have you back. But if you're at all wondering what, it, what does it look like to actually follow this God who gave everything for you, please do not leave without talking to somebody. Talk to me, talk to any, talk to the person who maybe brought you, any of the sojourn leaders. Okay. 
So we're going to enter into a time of communion now. And uh, this is a really important moment in the lives of believers. It, it shows us and reminds us that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're part of a family. Uh, the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to each other. We're adopted heirs because of what Jesus did. And as you get ready to approach the table today, I'd, if you already have something in your heart you want to talk to God about, uh, repent of, worship him for, please do that. Uh, remember, Jesus doesn't say, this is different than any other religious founder, he doesn't say, I'm the giver of the bread of life. Here are these rules you must follow and maybe I'll accept you. He says, I am the bread of life. And see, everything we eat, outside of a couple of minerals, I believe, has to die so that we can live. Uh, that's how it works, substitutionary sacrifice. Animals die, plants die so that we can live. Bread's the same way. Not only does the grain die, but if you keep the bread whole, if you don't break it, then you die. But if the bread is broken, then you can live. And Jesus says, I'm the bread that was broken for you. My blood was poured out for you so that you can live. And yeah, just ask him to make his love for you real to your heart, that you can treasure him, seek him, that he would become more precious to you than anything else. Uh, communion is a time where you actually get to meet God at the table. Um, this is really about him and what he's done, not necessarily you and all your failings. So rejoice in the forgiveness he gives you. And we ask you, if you're, if you're not trusting Christ as your Savior, please just hang out in your seat. This is not something that saves you. Uh, it's not something that makes you part of the club. Uh, just hang out in your seat. And again, I'd really just love it if you could talk to anybody about what it means maybe to follow Jesus. And nobody will be noticing you know, if you're sitting there anyway. I'd really, we'd, I know Justin would say he'd much rather you pursue Christ than, than come up to the table today. So I believe the communion folks are going to come up, and uh, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for caring enough for us to deliver this hard-hitting text about treasure. Thank you so much that you treasured us even when we didn't treasure you. And I ask for all of us today, this week, as we head out into the world, that that love would be a ballast by which we can move, that we would worship you, seek you, treasure you just a little bit more this week. Thank you for what you did for us, that we can worship together as a family because of what Jesus did. In the name of Jesus, our risen and most high King, amen.